I'm just so excited. It's somewhere I've wanted to go for so long. And I'm just, I'm ready to be in Napa. I'm still trying to figure out what I'm going to wear. I keep looking at all these Uh, different dresses. I am just so jealous. You've actually been to the area, though. I've never even been close. I mean, I've driven through it well, you in the middle it. of a four-day car ride. <laughs> I mean, yes, we did stop at Saracena, did stop at the Hippie Commune, but it was in the middle of a four-day drive, so I don't think... I didn't get to experience. No, that's a total fair point, but I literally... It's overwhelming looking at all the wineries that are available, and I'm like, I don't know where to go. Someone tell me where to go. Someone else pick the wineries. So, hey, listeners, I have a few weeks. I'm not going until September. So if you have some wineries you've visited in Napa, let me know. I would love to go on your recommendation. Well, anyway, hello, everyone. This is Blood and & Wine, and I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And I'm going to Napa. I'm not. I'll be here. You'll be here. So before we get started, if you haven't checked out our Patreon, be sure to hop on over there. Um, I know we've been doing a lot of our Patreon picks episodes lately. Um, This one is not. This one I picked the topic for. But if you haven't checked it out, Hop on over. We have our murder minis. We have our new bottle talk episodes. And also in our top level, the Cabernet Sauvignon Comtics, you get our blood and wine sticker, handwritten note. You get to direct an episode. You can even tell us a wine maybe that you want us to do. We're pretty flexible. But check out our Patreon. We are so appreciative to everyone who's been supporting us. Um, you guys are totally the reason that we're able to do this. And so we're really excited to have Patreon as a way to give back to you guys as well with all of this extra Patreon-only content. Also, while you're checking out Patreon, make sure to subscribe to us on your podcast listening platform of choice. That way you will get the most up-to-date info on us. You'll automatically automatically get our episodes when they come out every Tuesday. Also, side note, make sure to check out our merch store on our website, bloodandwinepodcast.com. Uh, we just revamped the merch store, so you might see a couple new things there. So check that out. There is a new crop top that I am dying to get my hands on because it's so cute. And I'm just like picturing it with my high-waisted jeans and it's everything. It's everything I want. So definitely hop on over to the merch store. This week, like I said, I picked our topic and we're doing one that's a little bit different, but definitely one that I think some of you guys have been wanting us to do for a while. We are talking about cults. And we've actually talked about a few cults before in previous episodes, but this episode is going to be fully dedicated to cults. And when we think of that term, cult, we generally think of it, um, it's referring to a social group that's defined by some unusual religious or spiritual or philosophical beliefs, or maybe even just a common interest in a particular personality, object, or goal, like an end goal. But this word cult often carries with it a very negative uh, connotation. It's a very derogatory term. There are a lot of subcategories of cults. There are destructive cults. These are ones that generally refer to groups whose members have, through some type of deliberate action, they've physically injured or killed other members of their own group or even just other people. 
There are doomsday cults, which this expression is generally describing groups that believe in something like the apocalypse. And it can also be used to refer to both groups that predict a disaster is going to happen and groups that attempt to bring about that disaster. Political cults is another subgroup, and these have, you know, obviously primary interests in political action and ideology. Polygamist cults are cults that teach the practice of polygamy, so this is a man being able to have multiple wives. There's also racist cults, think of like the KKK, or terrorist cults, which are very similar to destructive cults, but sometimes they have a little bit more of like the the nationalism and terror type things Mm -hmm. involved. However, when it comes to the people who are actually involved in these cults, the cult followers, they're victims too. They're not like, Mm -hmm. they're not, you know, crazy lunatics who brought their fate on themselves. They're, and that's how they're often categorized as, and that's not... That's not true. I mean, they've been completely brainwashed by very powerful leaders. And this type of mind control really involves a systematic breakdown of a person's sense of self. So they start to no longer know who they are. And this thought reform, it's an umbrella term that's used for any number of manipulative techniques used to get people to do something that they normally wouldn't do. And this whole concept of thought reform in itself, it's its really controversial. And some say it's more like propaganda designed to scare people away from new religions and political movements. But most psychologists actually believe that cult brainwashing techniques, which are similar to techniques used in prisoner interrogation, that they do change a person's thought process. So when we look at the process of a cult's indoctrination, These techniques will include deception, isolation, induced dependency, and even a sense of dread. One of the most infamous cults is the People's Temple of the Disciples of Christ, which was founded by Reverend Jim Jones. And we've all heard about the mass suicide of 900 people by drinking the Kool-Aid in Jonestown, Guyana. And that's not, I'm not using that term as like, oh, they drink the Kool-Aid. Although that's literally where this came from. These people actually did drink Kool-Aid with, I believe, cyanide in it. I think so. Potassium cyanide. And this is one thing I'm just going to say straight up. Neither of us picked Jonestown for this episode because there's a lot that's involved in Jonestown. Mm -hmm. And it needs its own episode. We definitely have something planned. This will not be the last you'll hear of Jonestown from us. But just know that it's not in this one. But that one's coming. um, Because it's insane. I mean, there are documentaries about it. There's just a ton of information. So like I'm saying, cults happen. They happen in our society. They've happened in um, all around the world. They've happened a long time ago. They continue to happen today. But again, just remember the people involved in them, they're victims too. And that this brainwashing, it's its real. Well, and I think that's something that's really important to remember because I feel like when you often are reading things about cults, they're often slanted in such a negative light around the members themselves. And so often it's individuals who are at their most vulnerable that are taken into these cults, you know, be it children, mm-hmm. be it people with substance abuse issues, be it people that don't have 
a close network around them are often the ones who are brought in to these cults that victimize people. Well, and think of, like, the Manson family. I mean, that was huge. And he preyed on people who were outsiders, who were, like, the black sheeps of the family, and they became his followers, his family. Yeah, exactly. So... That's, that's, I'm glad you brought that up because that's one thing that when doing my research, you know, there were a couple sources that I read that thankfully did call out other sources being dicks about it. Yeah. But there were a lot of sources I saw that were like, well, they deserved this. And I'm like, no how one deserves you actually think this. that. Yeah. Like I said, this is, um, this is a really interesting topic. And even when I just did my research of the background of it and finding all of this information that psychologists believe when it comes to like the brainwashing of cults and how they are founded and it just, it's terrifying, but also fascinating that people can sometimes be like sheep and follow something. Well, I mean, like with Jonestown, it's like, you know, just the idea that one person's influence could bring almost a thousand people to both kill themselves and their loved ones. Yeah. Well, before we jump into this, y'all could tell this is going to be a dark, heavy episode, like they always are, honestly. But before we jump into that, I'm going to jump into my wine. Yes. So the wine that I chose for today is the 2016 True Myth Cabernet Sauvignon from Paso Robles, California. And this wine was actually a gift from a coworker and friend. So, Zach, thank you so much for the wine. It looks and sounds amazing. So the first thing I want to talk about is the winery. So their description that they wrote about themselves. Uh In our location on California's central coast, we are eternally awestruck by the magic of her omnipresent influence. From the dry heat of the vineyards in Paso Robles to the coastal influence on our vineyards in Edna Valley, our grapes are grown just a few miles from one of her greatest creations, the deep blue Pacific Ocean. We respect Mother Nature for the enigma that she is and honor her by creating wines of quality and flavor that mirror her splendor. Join us as we continue on this journey. Taste and believe. I want to join. I want to believe. I, mean, I need to know what yeah. this is. Tell me more. Well, it's it's I mean, like that's a cult. Why it's perfect for the cult. Episode. I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. So yes, they're a Paso Robles vineyard, and they are one of the highest rated vineyards in the area. I have seen great things from their wines. The two they're known for are this Cabernet Sauvignon, and then they have a Chardonnay as well. Uh, Yeah, Um, I've seen that bottle. Um, Their labels are stunning. Oh, the bottle's gorgeous. It's this um, woman, and it's like from her lips down. Um, so like chin and neck, and then she's surrounded by these like autumnal colored butterflies, like monarch butterflies and stuff. And it's gorgeous. Mm-hmm. So this is a rich yet smooth Cabernet Sauvignon, and it's loaded with aromas of blackberry, blueberry, pepper, and cassis, which lead to flavors of dark red fruits with hints of cedar spice, cocoa powder, and caramelized oak. And these persistent flavors create just a very long, lingering finish. I My mouth is almost watering thinking about, like, the cassis and the oak playing with the cedar. 
Like, mm-hmm. you, you're literally describing my favorite kind of cab, and... I know. Uh, I'm, I'm so, so jealous. I'm so excited to see this caramelized oak. Yes, yes. So it's probably a little, like, that smooth sweetness. That, like, deeper, yeah. Mm-hmm. Dang, that sounds delicious. Okay, well, while you get into yours, I will tell you about mine. Ooh, mine is actually one of our first leaf wines. So this is a bottle of the 2017 International Archives Similion from Australia. And it is a very vibrant yet complex white wine. So it comes from one of the best locations for Similion, which this grape can sometimes be a little bit difficult. And there in Australia... You know, their their hot, dry climate means this grape requires extremely careful and precise irrigation to make sure the vines are properly nourished and allowing for just enough water for the fruit to ripen without overwatering this very delicate root system of the vineyards um, of this like Similion grape. So what I'm hearing is that if you want to start your own vineyard, maybe don't start with a Similion because... It's a bitch to grow. Yeah, not an easy one. Uh, Especially if you have a dry climate. Because you you have to water it enough, but not too much. But honestly, I feel like the grapes and things that are most difficult to produce are often some of the best, so... It's true. And a lot of the wines that do come out of Australia are typically, like, very big, bold, and incredibly enjoyable wines. I do say so myself. So this wine has notes of citrus that are balanced by a strong minerality and light floral notes. It took home 91 points and a gold medal at the 2018 Sommelier Challenge. And it's a deep yellow color and about 11% ABV, so not too strong. The aromas are apricot, pineapple, lemongrass, honey, and a little bit of rose water on the nose. It's got a very plush texture when you taste it. This uh, moderate acidity that it has, it's it's bright and juicy, white peaches, pineapple, um, and this really carries the wine with a little bit of honey and cotton candy and baby's breath to add, add in those floral notes. So... Ooh. This one sounds like it's really, like like I said, it's a complex, and so it's got all these different flavors that are playing around together. And because of that very refreshing minerality, it's an ideal pairing for seafood. So things like oysters, grilled fish, and of course, like a lot of white wines, spicy Thai curry. Like, spicy mm. food, great with a white I like this. I love Thai curry. I really want Thai food right now after reading that. Um, So again, like I said, this wine is from First Leaf. It retails for $22, but like we've talked about before, it's only $15 in your First Leaf box. And before we get to tasting, here's a little bit more about our First Leaf promo. Hi, everyone. This is Blood and Wine, and I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And we've partnered up with First Leaf, a monthly wine subscription service. With First Leaf, you take a quiz to determine your wine preferences, and based on your results, First Leaf sends you an intro box of six wines. Try all the wines and rate them, and First Leaf will use your ratings to recommend more wines for your curated club orders. If you happen to get one you don't like, you just let First Leaf know, and they will replace it. 
Your shipments of six bottles are all $15 a bottle, no matter what wine you get. You can also order additional boxes, other than your curated ones, in their online store. With our partnership, if you visit page.firstleaf.club slash bloodandwine and enter blood and wine at checkout, you get free shipping for a year. That's a savings of $120 if you're just getting one box a month, and even more if you order additional boxes. Again, that is page.firstleaf.club slash bloodandwine and the code bloodandwine at checkout. Bye! Shit, that was violent. That almost went all over my desk. Um, okay, well, so I am pouring my wine, and I really want to us to taste these, because I'm really excited. Look how, like, pigmented mine is. How dark it is. This one is extremely yellow. Look at that. This really does smell like a Chardonnay. Like, this is full-bodied. Um, I want to hear about yours, though. What? Tell me about your wine. So the smell is so strong and concentrated, and it's it's just a very deep, heavy-looking wine. I think this is going to be a, a very concentrated cab. Yeah. But um, I'm excited to drink mine. I'm really excited to drink mine. When I smell it, I definitely get, like, honey and um, some pineapple on the nose. But let's cheers I, and taste these babies. Yeah. I'm definitely smelling... Um, those pepper and the blackberry, but I can also definitely tell it's going to be a very oaky cab. So anyways, cheers. Cheers. Ooh, this wine is not what I was expecting. You know how I mentioned the flavor or the smells, aromas are very concentrated. Right. I was expecting this to be a very heavy wine, but it's very drinkable. You know how sometimes you get a wine that's good, but it's really heavy and really should be with food? Yeah. Like, that's how I feel about, like, Cab Francs. Oh, yeah. I'm not a big fan of them by themselves, but with food, they're great. This one is a great by itself wine. That's good. So you can definitely get those flavors of the cedar, some of those dark fruits. I see the oak, and I see, like, a smoothness with the oak, so I'm assuming that's what they mean by caramelized. You see the oak? But, yes. What is the oak telling you, Tyler? (laughs) (laughs) It says, just beyond the river bend. Oh my god, yeah, no, because the tree. I get it. Yeah. Well, that's (laughs) Grandmother Willow. I'm, this is Cousin Oak. Uh, no, but okay, I taste the oak. Is that better? (laughs) And I assume with like, the smoothness around it. That's the caramelized they're talking about. Either way, this is a great wine. Good. So, thank you, Zach. I'm glad you enjoy it. This one, because I've had one Similion, or or at least the Similion was a grape in a wine that I had. It was, this is not my first one, but since it is fuller, it does remind me more of a Chardonnay. So it's not, because you know me, I'm like, Pinot Grigio is not my thing. Um, mm-hmm. So this is on that opposite end of the spectrum, a good white wine for red wine drinkers. Very much getting that honey and a little bit of that floral, like, rose water and uh, baby's breath Ooh. that it's got in there. It's a nice, it's a very smooth wine. The acid, it's, you know, like I said, it's not high. It's a pretty moderate acid. So it's there, but it's not stinging me. So I'm not getting a ton of that, like, pineapple and lemongrass. It's more so that 
honey, apricot, rose water. As far as minerality, to be completely honest, I get minerality and acid a little bit confused. So I'm not necessarily picking up on that minerality, but I'm also not 100% sure if I'm thinking the right thing when I'm tasting that minerality. I'm definitely not tasting dirt, though. It's a very fruity. When I think minerality, I think of that bedrock, I think it was a cab, that we had from the Valley Mills winery outside of Waco. Right. That had that very strong, like, limestone mm-hmm. brie rind kind of flavor. Yes. And that, to me, is what I think of. I don't know what yeah. exactly it is, but I will say, and, and I will say this, and it's not scary, but I get what they mean when they wrote Cotton Candy Notes. It's a little bit on that mid-palette right before you get to the finish. There is a little bit. It's not like sugary but it's like cotton candy like almost like more so the aroma of cotton candy in a taste if that makes sense uh yeah this is um good i like it good white wine i'm really impressed with myself by the way with how many more white wines i've been enjoying lately i feel like i've been doing Mm -hmm. more white than usual and uh you're doing all the reds kinda i will say no one thing that we should do in an episode that your wine reminds me of is mead Oh, yeah. So I've only ever had mead once, and I think it was at, like, a Total Wine. Like, at a liquor store, they were doing a tasting, and I was like, oh, mead, sure. Which, for those of y'all that don't know, mead is a honey wine. It's fermented honey, so it's, I guess, technically not like a wine wine like you think, but it's fermented honey, and surprisingly, it doesn't have to be sweet like you'd think. You know, they you can get it... Dry, sweet, semi-sweet, you know, like... Kind of like a cider? Yeah, sounds like a cider, too. But there's also meads that are flavored different things. You find, like, elderflower mead, which sounds incredible. That sounds amazing, and I need that right now. I'm just saying we should do an episode where we drink mead. I love it. So, now that we have our wine, we have our topic, I'm gonna just jump straight into my case. Let's do it. So, for my cult case... I chose the Waco Siege, also known as the Waco Massacre. I honestly had a strong feeling you would pick this one because I feel like we've had multiple conversations about Timothy McVeigh's like inspiration <laughs> based on this cult. And I just, my gut told me this is what you were picking. Yeah, we have. And the Waco Siege was definitely one of the big, I guess, yeah, inspirations, like you said, for the Oklahoma City bombing. So the sources that I used were History, WacoHistory.org, Vox, and Time. And there's also a mini-series that Paramount did, uh, I think a couple years ago, just called Waco, that has, I don't know, some famous people in it that I didn't recognize their names, but apparently it's really good. So Did you watch want, it? If y'all... No, because it's like seven episodes and like oh. an hour each. It's like one of those. It's kind of like the Chernobyl miniseries that HBO did that everyone has been talking about. Gotcha. The past month or so. Yeah. So it's that kind of historical, I guess, docudrama. Yeah, absolutely. So if y'all are interested in learning more about this, because this is one of those, there's no way I can dive into everything, highly recommend watching Waco. 
So, first I want to talk about the Branch Davidians. So in the 1930s, a disgruntled member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church named Victor Hutel had broken away and founded the Davidian Movement. After his death, Ben Rodin led an offshoot of this that became known as the Branch Davidians. They took control of Hutef's original settlement at Mount Carmel near Waco by 1962. So basically, they're a splinter sect from the Seventh-day Adventist and then splinter sect from the Davidians who took over the Mount Carmel compound. And I can already tell, so there's one thing about cults. I feel like they can so quickly become very confusing because they are based on a lot of these, like, religious and psychological beliefs and whatnot Mm -hmm. that, like, at least for me, they, like, so quickly, I'm like, wait, what, huh? Well, and it's like the Davidians and the Branch Davidians are two very different things. Right, right. And it's like, wait, what? It, It can get very, very hard to keep track of. So... One of the things that was specific about the Branch Davidians is they believed that the Bible was literally the word of God, and they looked to it for clues about the end of the world and Christ's second coming, as told in the book of Revelation. So many cults have to do with the second coming of Christ. So Ben Rhoda, the leader and... I guess, creator of the Branch Davidians, died in 1978, and that left his wife, Lois, as the head prophetess of the sect. Throughout Lotus Rodin's leadership, her son, George Rodin, claimed to be the next heir apparent for the Branch Davidians. However, he was not widely respected within the community, and his own mom didn't support his claim. She had aligned herself with a man named Vernon Howell, who was this young, charismatic Bible teacher who first arrived at Mount Carmel in 1981. After briefly leaving, Howell returned in the mid-80s, and he gained support and a growing following among the Branch Davidians. Despite all of this, George Rodin was able to gain control of Mount Carmel in 1985, and he expelled Howell's rival faction at gunpoint. Oh. So he was like, I am the head of our sect. Get the fuck out. Yeah. Y'all don't want to follow me? You can go. So Howell and his followers resettled in Palestine, Texas. They returned to Mount Carmel two years later to gain control of the Mount Carmel property back. So eight men, including Howell, exchanged gunfire with Rodin on November 3rd, 1987, before being arrested and charged with attempted murder. Howell's followers were all acquitted, and Howell's case was declared a mistrial. So they shot their way into the compound, were arrested afterwards, but they all got off. But because Rodin owed thousands of dollars in unpaid taxes on Mount Carmel, Howell and his followers were able to raise the funds and take over the property as theirs. Just like conquest, like taking it over. Yeah. So Howell perpetuated many of the distinct Davidian traditions, including being an authoritarian leader, having communal life separate from society, and also this anticipation of the imminent end of the world. In 1990, he changed his name 
to David Koresh. Wait. Oh my gosh. Okay. I was wondering. I was like, who's this Howell guy? Like, where is this coming in? Also, yours, totally a doomsday cult. Like I was talking about on our topic. 100%. So, yeah, David Koresh is a name that many people will find familiar. And that is what Howell changed his name to. Yeah. So while previous leaders of the Branch Davidians had been pacifists, Koresh began stockpiling weapons and ammunition in order to defend the faithful. Authorities suspected that the Branch Davidians possessed illegal firearms, and on February 28, 1993, the U.S. Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, or the ATF, raided the compound and began the 51-day Branch Davidian siege. So you know what's really scary about everything you just said is that you could literally be talking about today. Like, I could see something like this happening in today's world. Oh, 100%. Yeah, and especially just with with how much is going on, uh, especially like politically and religion is very much tied into a lot of that. I could see this and I'm scared. Yeah, and I mean, also remember, this is not that long ago. Actually, now that I think about it, it kind of is. It's 26 years ago. Oh my God, I'm old. But Again, 26 years is not that long ago. No, it's really not. So back to a little bit more about David Koresh. So he taught that he was the Messiah and that any children born from the Messiah would be sacred. So because of this, he engaged in multiple quote-unquote marriages with women and girls in the Branch Davidian community, some of whom were underage, And he fathered at least 13 children. So he was also a polygamist. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I didn't realize. I I will say, like, looking up those subdivisions of cults, a lot of them you can tell, like, intertwine with one another. So much. Oh yeah. So in the years after the Waco siege, a number of additional children who had grown up among the Branch Davidian community reported that Koresh had molested them. But that said, at the time of the siege, the evidence to support any sexual allegations against Koresh was very inconclusive, and it was not known. Yeah. And while there had been a few probes into alleged sexual abuse at the Mount Carmel site, they didn't go anywhere. The government's primary interest in the Branch Davidians was their alleged possession of illegal arms. Yeah, all the firearms that they had. So this is this is stuff that was found out after, and a little bit during, which I'll go into. So, you know, it's not a case of the ATF bursting in to save these children trapped in this sex cult. They're there for the guns. And to be fair... They had evidence to suggest Koresh was collecting a cache of weapons that included semi-automatic rifles, assault rifles, shotguns, revolvers, pistols, and hundreds of grenades. So it's not like he has, you know, a gun closet. He's, like, basically building a militia. He is, and I'm honestly surprised you didn't say a bazooka in that list of all of the things that he had. Yeah. So... Again, on February 28th of 1993, the ATF attempted to raid the Branch Davidian site in order to execute a search warrant for these illegal weapons. 
And what happens next still to this day remains unclear. Both surviving Branch Davidians and surviving agents claimed the other side fired first. But whatever actually happened, the raid resulted in a bitter gun battle that killed five ATF agents and five Branch Davidians and injured another 16 agents. So how long did this raid last? Do you know? I think it was a few hours. Okay, so this was just a a smaller amount of time, but there were a lot of casualties in that small amount of time. Yeah. When the gunfight ended, there were 10 total dead. And inside the compound remained 62 adults and 21 children who refused to leave. And that's when they begin their standoff with the government. So what followed in this standoff was all but unprecedented in American history. This was a 51-day standoff between the Branch Davidians and now the FBI who took over from the ATF. That is so long. Like, think about that. That is almost two months. Yeah, of them barricading themselves in there kind of thing. Yeah. It's crazy. And to get the scale of it, uh, Malcolm Gladwell, who was writing for the New Yorker on the siege, described it as so. The FBI assembled what has been called probably the largest military force ever gathered against a civilian suspect in American history. Ten Bradley tanks, two Abrams tanks, four combat engineering vehicles, 668 agents, in addition to six U.S. Customs officers, 15 U.S. Army personnel, 13 members of the Texas National Guard, 31 Texas Rangers, 131 officers from the Texas Department of Public Safety, 17 from the McLennan County Sheriff's Office, and 18 Waco Police, for a total of 899 people. Does that not seem like a bit of an overkill? How many people are at the compound? Like, 83. But, like, doesn't that... I feel like that is an astronomical amount of force. I don't know. I just feels like a lot. I agree. And that's one of the big things that is recurring in this is the government like overreach and heavy handedness to this. Because like regardless of having 900 uniformed personnel, you have 12 tanks. Yeah. And four combat engineering vehicles. Like, but like that that number what? is. I mean, I feel like this has to be an intimidation tactic that they were going for because the necessity for all of that is not there. Also, this seems yeah. like very Texas, though. Like you know, bigger in Texas. Yeah. Oh yeah. So that is. I didn't realize the military and like law enforcement brought that large of a presence. Yeah. I mean, the scale of it is almost unimaginable, because while the the Mount Carmel compound is not small, I mean, it's big enough to house, it housed like 100 people initially, right? but it's not huge. And to have a small army amassing outside, it's one of the many different parts of this that is just fucked up. Well, and this just blows my mind, but I have to remind myself that this was back when there was the whole like satanic panic and cults were intertwined Mm -hmm. into that and this was 
something that everyone in America was focusing on. And I, oh, yeah. I just can't look at it through the 2019 lens where I'm like, oh my gosh, that's ridiculous. That's so many. Because at the time, mm-hmm. that was how they were responding to this type of thing. Yeah, absolutely. It's something that looking back through 2019 lens, you're like, what the actual hell? This overkill. Like, you know, yes, something needs to be done. There are five federal agents that are now dead and 16 injured absolutely. from this siege. But is amassing an army against them really the smartest way to go about it right and or necessary learned from what will happen here in a little bit and how the 51 day siege ended it was not the way to go about it so in his negotiations with the fbi during the siege koresh claimed that he was the messiah that was prophesied in the bible and god had given him his new name he threatened violence against those who would attack him and his family but He asserted that the Davidians were not planning a mass suicide. And to the Branch Davidians, Koresh was the lamb. He was the only one, according to the Book of Revelation, worthy of unlocking the seven seals and revealing to the world the entirety of the Bible's teachings. So essentially, he is the one to basically like herald in the apocalypse, but not the Antichrist. Because basically, in the book of Revelation, from my understanding, the Messiah comes back, the seven seals are broken, this opens all the teachings of God and the Bible, the rapture happens, and then like the Antichrist and the four horsemen do their thing. So David Koresh is to his followers, and he is telling them that he is Jesus, he is this person who will bring on the end of the world, the rapture, sending them all to heaven, but they're not a mass suicide cult. Yeah, okay. I think there's a lot of conflicting things, but this identification as being the Messiah allowed Koresh to justify some of his controversial practices, including, you know, taking various wives, some of whom were as young as 11. No, 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 no. Like when I said earlier it was women and girls, I mean, it's like children. Yeah, that's not... So... And the thing is, it's like, they're not called underage girls, they're called children. Yeah. As time wore on, the negotiators and the hostage rescue team, which was handling all the tactical maneuvers, disagreed on how to handle the siege. The hostage rescue team was frustrated by the slow pace of negotiations, and they employed aggressive tactics like playing ear-splittingly loud music on speakers 24-7 in order to induce sleep deprivation on the members of the cult. Oh. Um, also crushing their cars in the parking lot, just like driving the tanks over them. Oh my god! Basically doing whatever they want to try to get them out yeah. and to breach the compound. But really what this did is it disrupted the delicate negotiation efforts. Yeah. Because on one side, the negotiators are working with Koresh to be like, okay, well, if you let like three of them go, then such and such will happen. And then in the background, you have the hostage team just like driving their tank (laughs) over the parking lot. And Koresh is like, okay, well, no. I mean, like, no, because y'all are doing that. So like, you're not getting anything because you literally just destroyed 20 cars in the last 30 seconds. Yeah, and also, like, why am I going to trust you and listen to you if literally in the background that's happening? This sounds like this major miscommunication between the negotiators and what's going on. Because, like, that's not... Oh, it's it's a clusterfuck. Yeah. 
Yeah, you would think, like, this is going on for 51 days, you know, they could, like, sit down and talk to one another, but it doesn't sound like that's happening. Oh, they would. They would sit down and try to be a unified front, but they disagreed on how to do it, and instead of just, like, working together, they were like, well, I guess we'll do our own things. So you've got, like, the FBI doing their own thing, you've got the local law enforcement doing their own thing, like, just no one's working together. Okay. So during the 51-day standoff, the FBI was able to secure the release of a couple dozen people, and Koresh had 117 conversations with negotiators that lasted for a total of more than 60 hours. That's a long time to be negotiating. Yeah. But I guess in a 51-day period, I get it. I mean, yeah, that's like two 30-minute phone calls a day. Yeah. This all ended in mid-April, when after religious scholars reached out to Koresh through a radio discussion on the teachings of Revelations, because while there is this army of uniformed personnel outside, they're not the only ones trying to help. There's people all over, and there are some religious scholars on the radio talking to Koresh about revelations right just having a discussion about the teachings of revelation and koresh sent a message through his lawyer that announced that he'd received word from god and was writing his message on the seven seals and that he would come out with his followers when he was finished so he wasn't surrendering but he was about to leave the compound with his followers yeah the fbi though was unconvinced and they decided that 51 days is too long, and it's time to end the siege. Initially reluctant, Attorney General Janet Reno ended up approving of a plan to fire CS gas, which is a form of tear gas, into the Mount Carmel compound to try to force out the Branch Davidians. Oh my gosh. Just after 6 a.m. on April 19th, 1993, FBI agents used two specifically equipped tanks to penetrate the compound and deposit some 400 containers of tear gas inside. Soon after the tear gas attack ended, around noon, several fires simultaneously broke out around the compound and gunfire was heard inside. Safety concerns prevented firefighters from entering Mount Carmel, and the flames spread quickly and soon engulfed the entire property. The entire compound was ablaze. Though nine Branch Davidians were able to escape, investigators later found 75 bodies inside the compound, including 25 children. That's so many! Koresh was among the 75 found dead in the aftermath of the blaze, and many of the deceased had fatal gunshot wounds to the head, chest, and face. Koresh had a gunshot wound in the middle of his forehead, and among those killed were a three-year-old boy who'd been fatally stabbed in the chest, and two other miners who had suffered fatal blows to the head. So the Branch Davidians, like, turned on themselves? Or we don't really know. We don't really know. Because, so, also, I'm like, did David Koresh kill himself, or did someone else kill him? It's unknown. So, David Thibodeau, who was one of the nine who escaped and survived the fire, said in an interview with Time that he believes the dead Branch Davidians were shot by the FBI. The FBI claims that no law enforcement officer had fired a single bullet since the initial shootout, so it's not known. 
but Thibodeau said that it's also likely some of the Branch Davidians may have shot each other to prevent a slower, more painful death in the fire. Oh, so it was like a mercy kill, potentially. Yeah. I mean, the the building is burning all around them very quickly. Yeah. There's no way of them getting out, so maybe that's what happened, too. Or maybe when the FBI was firing the tear gas and raiding the building, they also went in. Oh my god. Because I I just have trouble understanding the idea that they're going to fire all the tear gas and then just, like, chill? Like, go have a lunch break? And then they're going to go in and get people out? Wouldn't they go in during this? So, but I don't know. I'm not a military tactician, so I don't know. Yeah. So the fire erupted from three separate locations inside the compound, according to the FBI. But who caused the fire has remained a point of contention. Although an independent arson investigation did conclude that the fire was started from within the building. The FBI claims that people inside the complex deliberately started the fire and the Branch Davidians argue the FBI was behind the blaze. Thibodeau said that he firmly believes nobody inside the compound would have started the fire. So this is so much a he said, she said. No, mm-hmm. it was the Branch Davidians. No, it was the FBI. No, it was the Branch Davidians. No, it was the FBI when it comes to starting the fire. Shooting. Like, everything. Oh, this is driving me crazy that there's no... We just don't know. It's all he said, yeah. she said. Oh, yeah. And so from the beginning, the government's handling of the Waco siege, which this entire thing played out on national and international media. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it was everywhere. I mean, it it was known when the raid was going to happen. And like when this fire started, people were watching it live on the news. They were watching this compound burn to the ground. And over the 51 days prior, I mean, it was a news story. You turn on the news and you see updates from reporters and stuff who are there that this unprecedented army sieging the compound. But the government's handling of it was heavily criticized. And though the government long maintained that its actions played no role in starting the fires at the compound... In 1999, it was revealed that some of the gas the FBI used was flammable under certain conditions. Oh, like the tear gas type stuff was flammable? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it could be one of those that no one deliberately started a fire, but, you know, this tear gas is being fired in the building. Maybe there's an electrical short. I don't know the specific conditions. It's flammable, but... Maybe the tear gas is what ignited and burned everything down. Right, because we, like, not only do we not know who started it, we don't even know what started the fire. So, Attorney General Janet Reno subsequently appointed a lawyer and former senator, John Danforth, to lead an investigation into what the hell happened. In 2000, he concluded that government agents did not start the fires or shoot at the compound. So that's the official government conclusion. But despite this, resentment lingered about the government's handling of the situation, and this partially fueled the growth of homegrown militias in the United States. Yeah. You know, groups all across are seeing how the U.S. government is treating this one, what they're seeing as a cult, a religious sect, or just a group. And they're like, oh, hell no. If they're going to do that, we need to protect ourselves and... So it literally them trying to go into this compound to get weapons 
only snowballed into hundreds of homegrown militias across the U.S., getting their own, arming themselves. Well, and I think one of the most surprising things that you talked about is how, yes, there was sexual and child abuse going on within the compound, but that the government didn't know that at the time. Their reasons for even doing this raid and starting this siege were not the ones you would think they would be. You know, does that make Mm -hmm. sense? Like, they were going in for all of the ammunition, When in reality, yes, government needed to step in because there was stuff going on that was wrong. They just hadn't identified all of it at the time and brought forward 800 people and built an army. Like that, that blows my mind. Where it's like, again, I still think that's an astronomical number of uh, people to come together for this group. But I don't know. It's just very interesting. It's like doing something and hoping that the outcome justifies your means. Yeah. And in this case, while, you know, like you said, in the end, they did discover this child abuse going on. The fact that they didn't know and that wasn't one of the reasons for this to happen, it's still not. It's it's just so heavy handed. It is. And I am not saying the Branch Davidians didn't need to be broken up because clearly they did. Yeah. Clearly, government intervention was necessary. I just feel like they did a lot of it. I feel like this could have been solved with so many less casualties and just so much less destruction. Yeah. But again, like I mentioned earlier, we can't look at this through 2019 lens. It's not 2019 at the time. There was the huge satanic panic. This was, this was something that was sweeping the country. And it's just, it's weird to look at things that happened in the past with what we know now. Yeah. And and that's yeah. almost a blanket statement on, like, a lot of things. Oh, absolutely. So the Waco siege and the 1992 Ruby Ridge incident in Idaho are often cited by government critics as examples of overreach and intrusion by federal officials. Because, again, a lot of this stuff could have slash should have been handled by local law enforcement and state police. But on April 19th, 1995 the second anniversary of the Waco siege's end, a militant named Timothy McVeigh, who we've talked about before, used a truck loaded with 4,800 pounds of fuel oil and ammonium nitrate to attack the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City. And with a total of 168 people killed and more than 850 wounded, The Oklahoma City bombing was by far the deadliest terrorist attack in the United States to that day, before 9-11. And one of the biggest reasons why Timothy McVeigh did this was because what he saw as government overreach and intrusion on the federal level from the Waco siege and Ruby Ridge. He chose the second anniversary of the Waco siege for that reason. And this federal building housed the local offices of the ATF and FBI in Oklahoma City. So that's why he chose the building. Have we ever talked about the fact that, like, I felt that? I mean, we were living in Oklahoma City at the time. You were super young. You were, like, two. Or almost two. I was, yeah, I was, like, almost two. Because I was seven. And so I have 
a lot of memories associated with this. And I remember feeling the ground shake. I mean, we live, what, how far is where we live from where this happened? Like maybe 10 Uh, miles? 15. Yeah. Yeah, 10, 15 miles maybe. And so you could feel it. And as I get older, it's like the tragedy of what happened is more, I feel it more as an adult because I understand Mm -hmm. it more as an adult. It's just, it's really crazy. The Mm -hmm. things that... Everyone in our age group and older that have lived through in our lives, honestly, beyond comprehension. The fact that, like, we've lived through the Oklahoma City bombing, we've lived through 9-11, we've lived through the whole Mm -hmm. war with Iraq, and just, and a bazillion other things that are just as uh, impactful. Well, and I think one of the scariest things about a lot of this is that, you know, when you're a child and when you're young, you see these villains as they're just evil for the sake of being evil. Yeah. There's no rhyme or reason. They're just monsters. And while that is true in some cases, the scariest thing is when you start learning the reasoning and Timothy McVeigh saw the Waco siege as government overreach. I have to say, I would agree on that point. But to take that idea of this is government overreach and bomb a building and kill uh, 168 people, it blows my mind. I know. It's horrifying. But I think the idea of like understanding the reasoning behind, you know, some these these killers, these monsters is horrifying. It is. It is. And the older you get, the more you understand and the scarier it gets. So in a lengthy report relaying the Waco events... The Justice Department said that the 51-day standoff at the Branch Davidian compound was unprecedented in the annals of American law enforcement. Never before have so many heavily armed and totally committed individuals barricaded themselves in a fortified compound in a direct challenge to lawful federal warrants. So the Justice Department's thing is not, it was overreach on ours, it's how dare they barricade themselves and create their own army. Mm -hmm. So the Waco siege captivated Americans and national media outlets as it unfolded during the seven weeks it was happening. And then in the years following and times Nancy Gibbs wrote at the time, right after the fire and the massacre ended, the sun didn't blacken nor the moon turned red, but the world did come to an end just as their prophet had promised. Oh my gosh, whoa. Yeah, so that is the case of the Waco Siege, and also known as the Waco Massacre. You can see why some people call it the Siege, some people call it the Massacre. I use them interchangeably. Yeah, that is a lot, and... Well, and this is something I've known about the Siege and this Massacre, and I've heard all the details, but every time I hear it, it just... I I just don't even know how to respond and react. It's just, like, mind-blowing. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's something that I've always been very interested in, like, the history of the Oklahoma City bombing. And you can't learn the history of that without also learning what happened at Waco. Yeah. But there's so much that I thought I knew and didn't. Mm-hmm. There's actually a documentary on Netflix about the Oklahoma City bombing that covers both Ruby Ridge and Waco in the beginning of it. Highly suggest you watch it. It's I think it's done by PBS, but it's very good in-depth documentary. And we are going to 
do the Oklahoma City bombing in a future episode. Yeah, we absolutely will. Well, with that, I'm now going to jump into my case, which is other levels of horror. So the cult that I will be talking about is called The Family, and their leader was Anne Hamilton Byrne. So I have to say, that name for the cult is very unoriginal. The Family, I know. Which is why... She gets an F on originality. (laughs) So, uh, the sources I used were CBS News, Wikipedia, The Guardian, All That's Interesting, and BBC. So, outside of the busy city life of Melbourne, Australia, a group of people operated in near total secrecy for over two decades under the control of a woman who believed herself to be the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. Stolen children, rituals involving psychedelic drugs and torture were all a part of Anne Hamilton Burns' plan to create a master race for a war that hadn't begun yet, and her doomsday cult, known as The Family, would amass a following of nearly 500 members. Well, jumping into how The Family started. Mm -hmm. She was born as Evelyn Edwards in 1921, And when Anne was still young, her mother died in an asylum after being diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic. Anne's father had trouble holding down a job and really wasn't up to the task of being a single parent. Like, he didn't want to do that. So Anne spent much of her childhood in and out of orphanages. Oh, damn. When she was an adult, she gave birth to a single child and then lost her husband in a car accident. After all of this happened, Anne began to immerse herself in yoga. And at the time, yoga was still very mysterious to much of the Western world, but Anne was very drawn to its connections with Eastern religion, and she would eventually begin teaching yoga. However, what followed was anything but the typical budding yoga career. By the early 1960s, Eastern religion and mysticism had begun to capture the interest of the West, and Anne built a type of reputation for herself among those in Melbourne who were fascinated with this new trend. She was into it. They were into it. She was their yoga teacher. They quickly built a connection. Yeah. I mean, she's already this authority leader in some way, this person they trust who teaches them things. So that, I mean... A natural shit. Absolutely. And she first met this guy, Dr. Raynor Johnson. He was a soon-to-be-retired physicist, and everything changed that moment when she met him. Johnson was very captivated with her charm, and speaking of her, Johnson would write in his journal that she was unquestionably the wisest and serenest and most gracious and generous soul I have ever met. So he is just, like, encaptured by her. I'm terrified because so far she sounds like a great person who overcame some adversity in her youth and overcame some shitty circumstances. And things are about to shift. So the two of them experimented with LSD and Johnson introduced her to some doctors, nurses, and lawyers that were also seeking this new age wisdom. And they looked to Anne, who they saw as this very charming yoga teacher, for guidance. They looked up to her. She was doing something different. She was introducing something new to the community, and they were into it. Also, they were all high on LSD. So Johnson actually helped recruit people to what was going to become 
a cult known as the family, and eventually they used his property on the outskirts of Melbourne as their headquarters, and they built a lodge on the grounds for group meetings and discussions. So at this point in time, it still seems fairly innocent. They're just building a place to meet. They're discussing New Age religion and, you know, nothing going wrong. Members mainly lived in nearby suburbs and townships, and they would meet each Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday evening at this lodge that was on Johnson's property. Um, It was known as the Sintinkinton Lodge, um, and I probably butchered that. Sorry, there's a lot of vowels in there. They also had a Crowther house in Olinda and then another property in an area known as the White Lodge. So they had three different meeting places, but the main one was the Mm -hmm. one there on Johnson's property. After they all started meeting in these lodges, it didn't take long for Anne to be delivering a big message to everyone in these weekly meetings. She had this like mishmash of Hindu, Buddhism, and Christianity And she would give her message to her followers, because at this point, they're following her. She's their leader. The family teaches an eclectic mixture of Christianity and Hinduism with other Eastern and Western religions on the principle that spiritual truths are universal. The children, who we're going to learn more about that soon, um, they studied the major scriptures of these religions and also the works of fashionable gurus, including Chimoni, Mer Baba, and Rajneesh. The group had an inner circle who justified their actions by their claim to be reincarnations of apostles of Jesus. And the, the basis of the family's philosophy was that Anne was actually the reincarnation of Jesus Christ, the living God. So, again, very similar to David Koresh being the Messiah and was the second coming of Christ. Jesus was said to be a great master who came down to earth, and the group believed that Buddha and Krishna were other enlightened beings who similarly came down to help out humanity. So, again, this cult is unique in the fact that it is blending Eastern and Western religions together, and and Anne's, like, at the middle of this. Like, she's the leader that has brought these religions together in the family. So it, I mean, whereas in my case, David Koresh kind of, you know, had this, the Branch Davidians was already a thing that he came into and grew as their leader. This is something that she is organically building on these different principles from Eastern and Western religion. Absolutely. So, I mean, I could definitely see how it's easy to, how it would be easy in that mindset to see her as the Messiah. I mean, she's building this religion in front of you, building these teachings right here. Yeah, and pulling from all of these existing religions and and bringing things to these people that they didn't know about. And so, I mean, Anne is regarded as that same level as like Jesus and Buddha and Krishna. She's, she's in that same category of teachers to her followers. In addition to gaining members through Johnson, family member Morian Valimek um, also contributed a great deal. So she managed the New Haven Hospital, which was a psychiatric hospital, and she treated many of the patients with LSD. Many of the hospital staff were members of the family, and it was used as a way to recruit potential members as well. So anyone who's there is either a member or maybe about to be one. And so 
Oh my! I know. And so when Anne rose to power as a cult leader with a small army of followers, she'd amassed a fortune and she adorned herself with fine clothes and jewelry. And she looked more the part of an urban socialite than a pseudo-religious leader. I mean, I can imagine her walking down the street in her Chanel and Prada and stuff. And because one thing that's very interesting about your cult is it's these people who you generally wouldn't think of as people who succumb to cults you know it's doctors and administrators and you know very influential powerful professionals that i feel like don't fit the common idea i mean to be honest could still very much be a lost soul regardless of what your profession is no it's true and it's also evidence that brainwashing doesn't pick a certain group of people brainwashing can like anyone could be subject to brainwash which is yeah absolutely which there's a really terrifying fact to just like put out there but like hey brainwashing doesn't just pick people it could be anyone speaking of brainwashing Anne had her members so brainwashed that they would give her absolutely anything and um, you know whether it be their money homes and even their children oh by the early 1970s the group had started to procure children. Some of the children were offspring of the members of the family, but others were falsely adopted or stolen. And because this cult was made up of doctors, nurses, and attorneys, getting around the red tape associated with a proper legal adoption was a lot easier. Like, these people, they could cut corners, they could find loopholes, it wasn't a problem. The children in the family were being raised as a part of a so-called master race. And the cult assimilated and imprisoned them in a very strict homeschooling environment. And this was at a rural property near Eladon in Victoria. Um, it was a lake that was there. So they're being homeschooled all together in this like really secluded rural property. One of the survivors, Ben Shenton, he later in life said this. Growing up, it was Anne and Bill. They were mom and dad. And then there were foster kids, and they were kids of other sect members who would either come up on weekends or stay there for stints for a couple of years. So in all, there were like 28 children that were a part of the family, and every single one of them was told that Anne was their biological mother. Wow. Their identities were changed, and they were given false birth certificates. The children's last names were changed to Hamilton Byrne, and their hair was dyed blonde because Anne had this, like, luscious blonde hair. It's actually very large, again, with this whole urban socialite thing look she had going on. Definitely had the hair for it. And all of this was in an effort to convince the children that they were all actually related. Honestly... She just seems so unsuspecting, and it's horrifying. You know, she is coming across as just this suburban, well-to-do mom, and she's the leader of this cult that is kidnapping children, but not just kidnapping, but literally, like, killing their past identity. Uh-huh. Because it's not a case of, oh, well, if the police raided it, they could find them and be like, oh, this is actually Johnny Johnson. And Ricky Ramirez. It's like, these, we don't know. Their birth certificates say they're her kid. You know, this is the 70s, 80s. We can't really DNA test everyone yet. That's still a few years away from being very widespread. So just the the fact that she is 
this unsuspecting someone that you would pass in Whole Foods looking at green juice and she is destroying the identities of these children and stuff is horrifying. It really is. And another one of the surviving children, Roland Whitaker, you know, he said, we all had blonde bleach hair. Not all of us. Some had red hair. And this was because Auntie Annie, which he called her, was actually naturally a redhead. So that's very interesting when you think about it. She had blonde hair to appearance, like a lot of people today, including myself, but that wasn't her And (laughs) And you. But that's not her natural hair color, yet she chose to dye these kids' hair blonde and red. So on any given day, whether she's got her bleached blonde or she's got her natural hair color, she can justify they're her kids. So all of the kids additionally wore matching outfits. And Whittaker said they wore very royal Von Trapp sort of clothes. And so that's the family in The Sound of Music. So they had velvet, smart shoes. You know, everything had to be polished. Everything had to look the same. And it was really to implant in the children that they were all brothers and sisters. So if they all had the same hair, wore the same clothes, were told they had the same last name or like actually had the same last name because those were changed, they believed they were siblings. However, life for the children in the cult was anything but happy and normal for a childhood. There were women known as um, aunties, and, and these were adult women in the group, which hits far too close to the Handsmaid's Tale, which is going on right now. Yeah, that's what I was uh-huh. thinking when you said aunties. I was like, you mean Aunt Lydia? Uh-huh, just like Handmaid's Tale. So the aunties would care for the children and groom them and make them look as identical as possible. And this was recalled by Sarah Moore, who was actually born into the cult. So she was one of the children that was born while a part of this community. And all of these children and everyone in this cult were completely isolated from the outside world. The cult was accused of subjecting the children to beatings, starvation, and further brainwashing, because we've already covered a lot of the brainwashing. And if a child stepped out of place... Food would be withheld, so that was the starvation, or even worse. Anne would lay into them with one of her stiletto hills, so that's some of the abuse. Oh, shit. Dave Whitaker, who was another child who grew up in the family cult, said that everything was fine as long as you obeyed. Anne was not someone you argued with. And so even if Anne was not around to dish out punishment when the children would misbehave, She still took her part in it. So when she was away, she'd call the aunties and listen to them discipline the children through the phone. Like She just wanted to hear it. And, you know, if these beatings weren't enough, the children would regularly be given doses of Valium to keep them docile until they turned 14. So these children spend a lot of their younger lives completely on drugs. They were they were also given large amounts of LSD and told by Anne that she was the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. So think about being a child who's under the influence of this extremely strong drug, and that's when you're learning that Anne is apparently the second coming. I mean, also, she's positioned herself already as someone who what she says is true. Absolutely. What she says is the truth regardless of anything any evidence 
to the contrary. You have vague memories of your actual parents. No, you just made those up because Anne is your mother and she is your birth mother and that's the truth. So you're on LSD and she's telling you she's the Messiah. Of course, you're going to be like, yeah, makes sense. Yeah, exactly. Or of course, Anne said so. So it's the truth. Yeah. And once these children reached adolescence, they underwent this really bizarre drug-fueled initiation ceremony. So this is like the equivalent of like coming to adulthood. And they were given a dose of LSD and left alone in a dark room for a period of time. And they only got visits from Anne and one of the cult psychiatrists while they were in there. That sounds horrifying. Oh, yeah. And they were told that one day... They would take over the world. So like many cults, the children and other cult members had little contact with the outside world. Like I said, they were very isolated. And this was a whole part of the theme of the family's motto, unseen, unknown, unheard, which is three of the most terrifying words I've seen next to one another. Yeah. However, in 1987... 14-year-old Sarah Moore, so remember I said Sarah was one of the children that was born in the cult, she got expelled from the group because of her rebellious behavior against Anne. So Anne was officially fed up with Sarah and expelled her. Sarah, though, was not going to let this be the end. With the support of a private investigator and others, she then played an instrumental role in bringing the family to the attention of the Victoria police. Fuck yes, Sarah. Yeah, Sarah was like, sure, kick me out. I will take you down. How is this not a movie? This It literally sounds like you're just reading, like, the plot of a Hollywood film. I wouldn't be surprised if there was an actual... There are plenty of documentaries, but I would not be surprised if there's an actual yeah. movie that's based on this. Because I'm imagining, like, a Sandra Bullock-type person is Anne. This is too cinematic. It is. It's very cinematic and terrifying. Yeah. So as a result, a raid took place on Friday, August 14th, 1987, and all of the children were removed from the premises. They were rescued. They were taken into protective custody and Anne fled the country. She escaped. Operation Forest, which was an investigation involving police in Australia, the UK, and the US, resulted in the arrest of Anne in June 1993 by the FBI in the town of Hurleyville, which is in the Catskills of New York. Oh, she went far. Oh yeah, she went really far. There was, I think they had a property there in the Catskills, and that was where she escaped to, because it was so far that it took them like six years to find her. Yeah. Surprisingly... She served almost no jail time. She was ordered to pay damages to numerous individuals for psychological abuse. Victims have attempted to pursue Anne through the Supreme Court to get justice for the abuse of more than 20 children that were part of the family. But like, despite police raids on the property and a massive investigation... The only penalties that were ever imposed on Anne is that she was charged with conspiracy to defraud and to commit perjury by falsely registering the births of three unrelated children as triplets. Are you serious? That's 
her only charge. That was it. Not, there's no kidnapping, there's no, like, false imprisonment, there's nope. none of that. Just falsifying the birth certificates of these three kids. And she pleaded guilty to this lesser charge of making this false declaration, and she was fined $5,000. That's it. I mean, yeah, she pled guilty. I'm sure that was her sentence, like, and guilty on this. And she's like, uh, sure. Yeah, uh, okay. And they're like, pay us five grand. And she's like, uh, okay, bye. I'm going back to the Catskills. Yeah, and like I said, like, there were numerous lawsuits filed against her and she did end up paying little bits and pieces to some people but for the most part like that was literally it and when she was older and lived in a nursing home with severe dementia so she was completely unaware to the pain and the suffering that she caused so many individuals Wow! and in june 2019 so just a couple months ago Anne died in melbourne at the age of 98 she, there were no consequences for no. her. And and this was a cult that affected so many people. And it's it's very much, there are similarities to yours, except for there was no like gigantic catalyst that brought this to this big ending. It was one yeah. person who was banished from the cult and was kind of just like, all right, fuck this. I'm going to the police. And she did. But there was no yeah. real punishment. Wow. And I mean, obviously, the children of the family are dealing with numerous amounts of psychological damage and um, oh, yeah. just unimaginable terrors that they're still facing every day because of how they were raised in this cult. Well, even if you don't look at, even if you just look at them being removed, being rescued, the trauma of because they're not being rescued no. to themselves. They think they're being kidnapped by the police because for everything they've been told and they've known for basically their entire lives, this is their mother and their family. Yeah. This is how the world works. Mm-hmm. This is not uh, you know, this cult by the lake. This is just their lives. This is how people live. Yeah. And so, you know, these police coming in and rescuing them and telling them, like, oh, that's not who you are. This is who you are. Like, just the psychological trauma and damage that even just that, it's horrifying. It's extremely life-altering and something that takes a lifetime to recover from. All right. So, time for post-mortem. post-mortem. So, I am just going to come right out and say I think mine was the more intense case. Yours is terrifying on a whole different level because yours, to me, felt more modern. Even though yours was, you know, main events happened, you know, 10, 20 years prior to mine, I can just see today the yoga teacher, the doctors, like this compound being built and the psychological abuse, which, Mm -hmm. I mean, is happening right now across the world. There are children in this situation right now. Mm -hmm. Your case, I feel like, could have taken place in 2019 easily well and and i will say i feel similarly about yours as far as that could take place today I, I find it interesting that both of ours had a lot of similarities but also a lot of differences and the mm-hmm. main similarities are ones we've already talked about the whole second coming of christ and both of our leaders believing that that is who they are mm-hmm. which is it's 
a whole level of terrifying. But that leads to how to convince people to follow you and how to become that leader and how to build the cult. And, you know, you had mentioned David Koresh. He didn't necessarily start the Branch Davidians. He kind of like took that over and started her own cult. And it is so scary how it quickly transitioned from a group of professional like doctors nurses lawyers adults curious about new age and yoga and religion and it built a fucking cult but when it comes to the outcome you know it it is tragic that in mine there really wasn't justice served but in yours it led to so many other things it led to the bombing it led to just, you know, an investigation that lasted years of, of, of who done it and he said she said and mm-hmm. and that adds like this layer of intensity that it's still being felt today in more than just the individuals who are involved in it. It it's being felt today still in, in a larger capacity. Yeah. Well and just how many people were killed right in mine i mean it was like if if you count everyone who was killed it's like 80 people yeah. i do think my case was the more intense one i agree and also it's it's one that we are weirdly personally close to in different ways mm-hmm. i mean the bombing the fact that Waco is a town, you know, that we've driven through dozens of times it's in the middle we, of us right now really passed <laughs> Yeah, but we've passed the old Branch Davidian compound dozens of times. Yeah, we we really have. And not really thought about it. But, I mean, that's something that the Waco siege is so tied into modern Texas history. So, okay. All right, well, I will pick the topic for next week again. And... Thank you guys so much for listening. If you liked this episode, if you love us like I know you guys do, please take just like five seconds and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. That really helps the word get out about our podcast. Share it with your friends. Um, we, we love you. Thank you, listeners. Yes. And also make sure if you aren't now to go and like and follow us on our social media platforms. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can see different updates, behind the scenes things, pictures of our wine every Wine Wednesday. Um, And again, mentioned it earlier, but also check out our store and our website at bloodandwinepodcast.com. And with that, this is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye.